Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Lisa Mandel, lead scientist at the Natural Capital Project, based at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. Lisa is the co-editor of a new book called Green Growth That Works, Natural Capital Policy and Finance Mechanisms Around the World. The book presents a range of fascinating cases from around the world, all centered around the tools that governments and others can use to protect and enhance ecosystem services. We'll talk about some of those cases, including New York's famously unfiltered water, preservation of wetlands, and stormwater management in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. Okay, Lisa Mandel from the Natural Capital Project, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Hi, my pleasure to be here. So Lisa, both of us are fighting colds at the moment, so uh, I'll apologize in advance to our to our listeners who have to listen through us, get through it. But it's going to be worth it because um, Lisa's uh, book that she's co-edited is really fantastic, and we're going to talk about um, the issues that she and her co-editors cover in this book. But uh, before we get into the substance, Lisa, we always like to, like to ask people how they got into working on environmental issues in the first place. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in California, um, spent a lot of summers growing up camping up and down the California and Oregon coast. And I think that's part of what contributed to my interest in nature and the environment early on. I've also always had an interest in the intersection between the environment and people and got really into the idea of medicinal plants and wild foods when I was a kid, which led me to an interest in college in studying ethnobotany or the the different ways that uh, cultures around the world make use of plants. Hmm. And and as I learned about that, I realized that you know the wild plants have benefits to local communities, but also globally in terms of sources of medicine. Um, but the ethics around bioprospecting were somewhat sticky. And, and I realized that maybe um, one way I could contribute to this issue was instead of focusing on the medicinal plants themselves, focusing on conserving the, the whole ecosystem in which these plants are found and these ecosystems which provide many other benefits, not just medicinal plants and wild food sources. And so that led me into the field of, of conservation biology uh, and ecosystem services in particular. Huh, that's so interesting. And that's a term I've never heard before, bioprospecting. Is that, um, what does that refer to? So that's the idea of going going out to forests or other other ecosystems and, and looking for prospecting instead of for gold in the, in the mountains, looking for biological resources that would have value. Um, and in particular, often um, wild medicines or plants that make compounds that could be turned into medicines. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so, wow. Well, that sounds like a really, I want to ask you now a stream of questions about your youth traveling around <laughs> California hunting for uh, plants and, and other things. But uh, we're going to stick to the topic at hand. And uh, I want to ask you some questions about uh, this new book called Green Growth That Works. Um, so the book focuses on policies and finance mechanisms to support natural capital. So let's start there. Can you give us a working definition of natural capital and explain to us why it matters? Yes, that, that's a great question. So natural capital is really a a metaphor, but it refers to the stocks of, of natural resources are 
forests and plants and soils and waters and animals and everything out there that if it's managed well can yield a stream of benefits to people that we call ecosystem services so everything from clean water to clean air to places to go camping or enjoy recreationally um, and so the the one way to think about it is that the natural capital is the stocks um, that then provide this flow of benefits Mm-hmm. So right, so the capital would be like the uh, the principal, and the um, the flows would be like the annual you know interest earned on that stock. Exactly. Interesting. So um, so the book describes you know literally dozens of cases from all over the world where governments are supporting natural capital in a variety of different ways. Can you give us kind of some some ways to think about? Uh, the the general types of strategies that are used to support these types of ecosystem services. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so we we break out six main mechanisms in the book. Um, one being government payments or subsidies. So when the, a government uh, will pay landowners or land managers to provide an ecosystem service that they might not otherwise provide at the ideal level. The second is regulatory mechanisms. So where there's a government law in place um, that requires folks who, um, for example, developers who damage natural capital or ecosystem service to mitigate that those impacts in one way or another. Uh, a third is voluntary mechanisms. And these actually might not even involve government very heavily, but where um, actors such as organizations um, or companies voluntarily decide to uh, protect or enhance ecosystem services. Governments can play a role there, for example, in the, role, in the case of um, conservation easements, where the government doesn't require anybody to grant a conservation easement, but does provide incentives through taxation um, that might encourage people to make those easements, uh, donate those easements where they wouldn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. Fourth is, is market-based mechanisms. And again, this mon- this mechanism might involve governments to a lesser degree, although they're often really important in terms of setting the um, the context that allows market-based mechanisms to function. And then finally, we, we also look at water funds, which are a, a mechanism for providing clean uh, flows of water in which downstream users make investments in upstream watersheds. And then finally, multilateral and bilateral mechanisms, which are between uh, different national governments. Uh-huh. Great. So so there's this whole universe of options that are out there, or universe of, of programs that one could imagine implementing um, at different levels of government or, or maybe not in involving the government so much at all. Um, as I was reading through the book, there were a couple cases that, um, that different authors described that I thought were really fascinating. So um, maybe if I can ask you about a couple of those cases and then ask you to maybe pick a third and talk a little bit about that third one that you find interesting. Um, so the one that caught my eye initially was uh, a case study focused on uh, water in New York. So anyone who's spoken with a New Yorker for more than about 20 minutes knows that uh, New Yorkers are very proud of their water. Uh, the water is famously good and famously unfiltered. Um, but that's not the result of some like miraculous accident of geology or hydrogeology. Um, can you tell us about New York's program uh, that helps provide its, uh, its great water? Yeah. So New York City gets its water from um, a couple of different watersheds that are actually at a pretty substantial different distance from the city itself. Um, and most of this water comes from the Catskills 
watershed further upstate. And this is, um, it's the largest unfiltered uh, source of water in the country. And um, a couple decades ago, basically for safety reasons, the U.S. federal government started requiring cities to either build filtration plants to ensure clean water or to show that they were otherwise managing their source watersheds in a, in a sustainable way um, to maintain clean, safe drinking water. And so New York City went with the, with the latter option, and it did this by um, making some investments in the land in the communities uh, upstate where the drinking water is sourced from. So this, this came in a couple of, of different ways. One is that the, um, the city started a, a program with farmers, which uh, helped the farmers there, a lot of them are dairy farmers and have other kinds of farms, to implement best management practices that helped um, reduce pollution going into the water and also protected vegetation in key areas, uh, for example, vegetation along streams, um, so that it could filter out any pollutants that might otherwise reach those those sources. And then there were, there were several other activities as well, some restrictions on where in these communities up, uh, upstream and upstate where development could occur. And to compensate for the communities for that, there's been some general investments in economic development and educational uh, opportunities for those communities as well. And then New York City has also, through easements um, and through, I think, direct purchases, also acquired key areas, key strategic areas where um, natural ecosystems are important for protecting the water resource. Right. So it's a real mix of strategies that the, the city employs. Um, mm-hmm. But it all sounds like it's mostly you know, outside of its jurisdiction. And yes. um, and that's a, that's one of the things that struck me as most interesting, because uh, when I imagine you know cities or other government entities, their ability to regulate activities, I typically think that that only applies within the physical limits of that city or that, that entity. So how, how does it work that New York City is able to regulate uh, land use outside of its own borders, and like, what are the legal mechanisms that are at play? And is that a common thing? Is that something that other cities could do if they so chose? Yeah. So in the case of New York City, it's actually pretty unusual. The state assembly um, passed a statute in the early 1900s that gave the city the ability to regulate the land um, again outside the city, but where its water came from. And so that. Um, that, that actually helped bring these communities in the in the source watershed in the Catskills to the table because uh, if they didn't negotiate something voluntarily with the city, then the city could, in theory, um, just impose regulations essentially without their agreement. So that was a big forcing mechanism in a way to, to uh, yeah, bring people to the table and, and get them to co- cooperate and think what might work for everybody. But that's... Yeah. that's uh, pretty rare. Um, but just because that mechanism doesn't exist in other cities doesn't mean that uh, programs like what New York City has with its source watershed and the Catskills uh, can't can't be feasible in other places as well. Uh, and one, one, me- one of the other mechanisms in that we talk about in our book are called water funds, which are a combination of a finance mechanism, governance mechanism, and uh, watershed management mechanism that allows users, water users, again, could be a city, could be, um, we've seen this with um, beer and soda bottling companies, others who want to have a reliable source of clean water, ways for them to invest in their upstream 
watersheds um, to uh, invest in the natural capital and ecosystem services there to ensure clean water supplies. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, so in those cases, it would be private companies uh, doing the negotiations with landowners rather than, like, say, a government. It, yeah, it could be. It could also be a coalition of um, private companies and, for example, municipal water sources coming together and saying, all right, how do we solve this problem that we have in terms of um, the cleanliness of our water and who upstream is um, making management decisions that affects our water and how can we... Um, invest in activities that will benefit those upstream landowners or landholders as well as the the drinking water source. So we've seen successful water funds in cities like Quito, um, in Nairobi, Kenya, um, a huge number around Latin America in particular. Fascinating. So we've been talking for the last couple of minutes about cities primarily uh, and and watersheds in the context of cities. Let's uh, maybe zoom out a little bit and think about uh, a U.S. federal program, uh, which is, uh, in this case, I was hoping to ask you about wetlands mitigation banking, which is something I knew very little about before um, reading the the relevant chapter in your book. Um, So one example of a national scale program, as I mentioned, is wetlands mitigation banking at the U.S. federal level. Can you give us a little overview about the purpose of wetlands mitigation banking and just kind of how it works? Sure, yeah. So basically with wetlands mitigation banking, um, the U.S. and many other places, the U.S. has a long history of losing wetlands to development. And I think traditionally wetlands didn't have such a great um, public uh, image. You know, people might think about swamps, but but wetlands actually perform really important functions, um, both ecologically and for people in terms of reducing flood risk by slowing waters, absorbing waters, cleaning water. They provide recreational opportunities for people um, and can be really uh, important stopover places for for birds and other wildlife, and so a great place to go view them. And so um, with development over time, the U.S. has lost a lot of its wetlands, and there was a realization that this was was a problem and that the, the benefits of filling in wetlands for development projects often went to you know private companies for example building a shopping mall or what whatnot um, but those losses those ecosystem service losses were actually felt by the the public as a whole right and so um, one way to try to remedy this problem was to require developers to mitigate the impacts that their development projects had on wetlands um, which could involve for example restoring a wetland and initially, this happened in a sort of piecemeal way. So each developer might be required to uh, mitigate that the impacts it had on a wetland on the property that it was developing or very close by. But the problem with this is that these developers weren't experts in wetland mitigation. They were experts in developing properties. And so this little piecemeal approach led to lots of tiny little fragmented, you know, not that high quality wetland patches. And so um, to solve this problem, the the approach of mitigation banking was developed in which developers could then, could um, instead of having to do the mitigation themselves, they could pay a mitigation bank uh, to do the mitigation and restore that wetland or protect that wetland uh, elsewhere. 
Mm-hmm. And then it would be up to the mitigation bank. Well, my understanding is that it would be up to the mitigation bank to discuss, to decide where it makes the most sense to actually do do the mitigation, whether or not it's sort of near the shopping mall or, or, or far away from the shopping mall. Yep, that's right. That the, the developer basically then just has to find some mitigation bank that has already generally already done that mitigation somewhere and has those credits to sell uh, for the equivalent amount of, of wetland mitigation that they've undertaken or that the developer needs. And so then the developer just pays for those credits um, and the whole the burden of um, figuring out where and how to do the mitigation is handled generally by the mitigation bank. There are some there are requirements generally within um, the, the federal rules that mitigation has to happen within a, a certain area or watershed. So, for example, um, if I develop something in California, I can't mitigate that with uh, a wetland in Texas. But um, but yes, sort of within a certain area, it's up to the mitigation bank to decide where it makes most sense. Yeah. And that's a great lead into the next question that I was hoping to ask, because in this chapter, there's a there's a map of all of the wetlands mitigation banks around the United States. And one thing that I noticed, because I live in Michigan, is that I, it didn't look like there were any mitigation banks in Michigan. So I was sort of thinking, well, let's say I'm you know, I want to build a shopping mall in somewhere in Michigan. Uh, you know, what do I do uh, if I want to mitigate my impacts to uh, to wetlands? Um, you know, how do I find a mitigation bank that sort of fits me geographically uh, to accomplish, uh, you know, what I what I need to do? Yeah, that's a great question. So the map that you're talking about is based on data um, from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which maintains a national database of different mitigation banks um, in the country. And, and you're right, there's not, there aren't, there's one listed, I just checked again last night, there's one listed as pending in Michigan, but um, <laughs> okay. there are no active ones listed there. But so I don't, I'm not an expert on the situation in Michigan, but I know in other states as well. So there's the Federal Clean Water Act that requires um, mitigation of, of impacts to wetlands, but many states also have similar laws that require mitigation. And to make things a little bit easier on developers, rather than having developers have to go through permits at both the federal and at the state level, there can be these joint um, joint groups that manage that process. And it looks like in, in Michigan, um, the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy seems to be the agency that sort of spearheads that, the mitigation banking process. And so if you go to their website, they actually maintain um, a database of their own of mitigation banks in Michigan. And I'm not sure why they're not reflected in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers website. There are about 30 in Michigan. Not all of them have credits available for sale. Some of them, um, it seems like, might be pending, and some of them have already sold out of credits. But that's one place where if you were a developer in Michigan, you can go and see what's available. And it also lists the, the different regions that each mitigation bank is allowed to sell credits within. Got it. So so in essence, it sounds like no matter where you are in the country, you, you would have the opportunity to participate in mitigation banking, even if um, you weren't sort of close by to a, to a core Army Corps recognized mitigation bank. I think so, although it's it's also possible. Um, I don't know the geography of Michigan well enough to say, but 
I think it's possible that there you could have a development project in an area where there is no existing mitigation bank. And um, how that gets uh, dealt with, I think, would be on a case-by-case basis. So mitigation banking is the preferred mechanism for mitigation, but if it's not possible, um, often either then the developer will have to do the mitigation themselves in the kind of older, original way, or uh, many places allow what are called as called in-lieu fees. So if you can't find credits to buy, um, then the government will accept a payment of some amount that they calculate um, that would ideally be the equivalent to enable them to go do that mitigation somewhere. Okay. That's a lot off my mind because now I can go build that shopping mall I've always been <laughs> dreaming about down the road. Um, well, there's probably a lot of other steps that I've I don't, I've glossed over. Um, so definitely check on what sort of permits are required before you get started. Okay, good. I, I will do that. Thank you. Um, so last question about uh, wetlands mitigation banking um, is, you know, one thing that you and your co-authors make in this particular case study is that the value to society from wetlands mitigation in one place, like an urban area, um, might be different from the value that society receives from wetlands preservation in another area, like in a rural forest or in a swamp, let's say. Um, so what are some of the implications of shifting the locations of wetlands away from urban areas and towards rural areas? And I, I sort of take it from the case study that that you know, would be an obvious implication of uh, wetlands mitigation banking, where you can develop in an urban area and then uh, essentially you know, mitigate that development by... Um, by preserving wetlands or enhancing wetlands in, in a more rural spot? Yep, that's a great question, Daniel, about the implications of moving moving wetlands from one place to another. And their value doesn't just depend on how many acres of wetland you have, but really who is nearby and who is benefiting in, in some of the different ways that we talked about before. And so one of the implications, so often what happens, we've seen with this wetland mitigation banking in the U.S., is that wetlands are developed in more urban areas um, because that's where there's demand for things like shopping malls. And the mitigation banks tend to be in more rural areas where land values, for example, are lower, so it's more cost-effective. But that means that some of the benefits that wetland provide, for example, who is getting flood protection from those wetlands and who has easy access to go walk or ride their bike or go birding in these wetlands, changes when uh, that wetland gets moved from an urban area maybe with lots of people around it, to a more rural area where there are fewer people um, or maybe where there are already more wetlands. And so the added value of an an additional wetland um, for some of these benefits is lower. And that's something that um, we're just starting to pay attention to and that that, um, the mitigation, uh, the people running mitigation programs are just more recently paying attention to. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know if there are any sort of promising approaches that are on the horizon to deal with that? I mean, sort of the way that I would think about it would be like the distribution of benefits from banking rather than just sort of the aggregate benefits from banking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there have been proposals to measure the benefits of of wetlands and to assign mitigation credits, not just based on the area of the wetland or the number of, um, for example, breeding animal pairs in that wetland but in terms of the number of people who benefit and potentially even some of the um, sociodemographic uh, variables associated with those people, are they um, already well-to-do people who have alternatives or um, more disadvantaged communities? So I don't know if there's any of any examples 
yet that do that explicitly. Um, I know there is a mitigation banking program in uh, Washington, D.C. for stormwater retention, so not for wetlands specifically, where they actually anticipate that the, the mitigation and the increase in green space will happen in some of the uh, areas of Washington, D.C. that have less green space. And so there the, they expect to increase the benefits to more disadvantaged communities uh, in contrast with, in, with what we've seen elsewhere for, for wetlands. Right. Now I want to sort of, you know, open it up and ask you to tell us about a case that you describe in the book that, or, or that maybe your co-authors talk about in the book uh, that you think is particularly interesting or, or illuminating. So anything that comes to mind. Yes. So sticking with Washington, D.C., there's um, an example that we cover in the book of the, called the D.C. Water Environmental Impact Bond that I think has some pretty interesting dimensions. Uh, so the case in this case in, in Washington, D.C., as it's become more paved and developed, the stormwater runs off really quickly. And during really bad storms, it overflows the ability of the um the system to to treat sewage and stormwater and basically just then the, the dirty runoff water gets dumped into the river, which has impacts locally as well as downstream into the Chesapeake. Um, and so trying to figure out how to deal with all this excess water uh, and in negotiating with the, the federal EPA, it was originally decided that Washington, D.C. was going to build basically these extra big tunnels that could store the water during a storm event um, and then release it into treatment um, sort of slowly afterwards. So building this new sort of gray infrastructure storage capacity. Right. But over time, actually using uh, green infrastructure approaches, things like rain gardens um, and green roofs and other things, uh, became more a more viable option, and so these these, uh, these green infrastructure elements can both filter the water to some extent themselves, and slow the transport of that water during a storm into the water system. And so it seemed like maybe DC didn't need to invest in these big tunnels and pipes, but could invest in green infrastructure instead. But one of the things that's um, pretty common with these green infrastructure approaches is that they're they're newer and they're seen as riskier and governments don't always want to take approaches that are, they want something that's tried and true. They know they can pay, they know what they're, they're going to get, what they pay for. Right. Um, and green infrastructure isn't always seen that way. So um, there's been a new uh, environmental impact bond um, that gets around some of those, those challenges in that it allows DC to raise money to fund a, a pilot for for green infrastructure, um, but it's a pay for performance bond, which basically means that if the green infrastructure doesn't perform as well as expected, the city isn't on the hook for those extra costs. The investors cover those costs. And on the other hand, if the green infrastructure um, exceeds its, its expected performance, then the investors will make some extra money but the, the city will actually save money because it means it needs to build less of that green infrastructure than it originally calculated. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a cool way to sort of pass some of the risk on to private investors and still try these green infrastructure-based approaches. Yeah, for sure. That's super interesting. Um, well, there are so many other fascinating cases like that in the book. I definitely encourage people to, to check it out um, because there are... 
you know, a, a wide array of strategies that are discussed in a wide array of settings. And I think there's a, I certainly learned a ton uh, by reading the book, and I, I'm sure many of our listeners would as well. Um, so now I want to ask you uh, the last question of our conversation, which we call the top of the stack, uh, to ask you what's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you think our listeners would enjoy. Um, and I'll start by recommending, uh, well, I, I sort of have to half-heartedly recommend this because I didn't love this movie, um, but I still thought it was interesting. So it's an HBO film documentary called Ice on Fire, um, narrated uh, by Leonardo DiCaprio, whose voice I find somewhat irritating. But the <laughs> uh, but the documentary is interesting because it talks about climate change um, in, a, in a somewhat hopeful way in that it focuses on some of the emerging technologies that are developing to address not only the impacts of climate change, but also climate change mitigation. So things like direct air capture technologies, growing kelp forests out in the ocean, uh, and a variety of other options. And so it's not the same old doom and gloom that I feel like one often encounters in this space. Um, and it's kind of neat just to see these um, these technologies in the flesh. Um, so I, uh, I, I'm glad I watched it. And even though it's not the world's greatest movie. I think some of our listeners will enjoy it as well. Um, but how about you, Lisa? What's on the top of your stack? Oh, that sounds great. Um, so on the top of my stack is an article um, from the website Vox by Rebecca Jennings called Everyone Wants to Instagram the World's Most Beautiful Canyon, Should They? And um, it's an article that came out earlier in this summer. My stack has a bit of a backlog, but it's <laughs> a, I found it a really interesting um, story. It's the story of a canyon in Arizona that is one of the most photographed, uh, most beautiful canyons in the world. It was featured as a background on Microsoft Windows and now um, is uh, very often photographed um, and Instagrammed. Um, and it goes into the history of the, the place. Um, the, the canyon itself is on Navajo Nation land and um, dives into sort of intersection of nature and beauty and how it intersects with how we use technology. Um, so I found it a really interesting story. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Is that one of those like sort of really beautiful red and orangey kind of slot canyons that, that you see pictures of? Exactly. Yeah. So you've probably, you've probably seen a picture of it already. Yeah. That sounds really fascinating. Well, we'll we'll put a link to that um, in the show notes so people can can go check it out and um, and I hope people will also check out the book Green Growth That Works. Um, so Lisa Mandel from uh, the Natural Capital Project, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Daniel. It's been great talking to you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute. We'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. Org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week 
for another episode.